0: Turn, if you would, to John chapter 4. We've been working our way through questions that Jesus asked different people. And uh, last week's was an easy question, but we still didn't make it through the lesson. So we're going to do part two of last week's lesson. If you remember, this is Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman... At the well, as near as we can tell, it's just the two of them. The disciples have gone into town to uh, buy some food. This woman comes to the well, and Jesus simply asks the woman for a drink. And sometimes we forget how shocking this would be, that a Jewish man would ask a Samaritan woman For a drink would have been uh, unheard of in this society. First off, the, the fact that he would ask a woman to do it. Secondly, the fact that it was a Samaritan woman. And for a Jewish person, the water would have been polluted by the mere fact that she had touched it. Yet he asked her for a drink of water, which started a conversation. And we spent most of last week's lesson dealing with the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman what it meant to the Samaritan woman, how Jesus handled the situation. And in doing so, we kind of skipped over some theology that is buried in some of these verses. So we're going to back up a little bit and look at some of the theology, and then we will finish off the narrative to finish off today's lesson. Skipping back to uh, verse 13... We see, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water, he's talking about the water that's in the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You remember the the encounter. He asked the woman for a drink of water. She goes, who are you to ask me for a drink of water? You're a Jew. He says, if you knew who was asking you for water, you would ask him for water, and he would give you living water. What is this living water that Jesus is promising, offering to the Samaritan woman? Well, a couple of uh, chapters from now in John 7 Jesus clearly states what this living water is. In chapter 7, verse 37 and 39, on the last and greatest day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. What he is offering, this Samaritan woman, is the Holy Spirit. As he tells her, the Holy Spirit will lead her to salvation. Now let's think about this in very basic terms just for a moment. Why do we drink water? Come on, this is easy. Because we're thirsty. Our body has a need for water. And if we don't get that need met, the body starts to dry up. All kinds of internal organs start shutting down. And the body suffers because we have a need that isn't being met. We have a physical need for water. And if that physical need is not being met, we suffer accordingly. But what we sometimes forget, what we sometimes overlook in our world today and in our world when Jesus is dealing with this woman, is that we also have spiritual needs. The reality is that in our fallen state... We have taken those spiritual needs and we've pushed them down so long that we begin to think that we can survive, that we can live, that we can function without that spiritual need being met. While Christ is telling us, in the same way that you need physical water to have physical health, you need spiritual water. You need the Holy Spirit in order to function spiritually as you were intended by God to live your life. And that's what he is offering this woman. He is offering her the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity. God living inside of us. And that's important because we're going to see a little bit more of that in the next set of verses that we're going to look at. If you remember, last week, as soon as he mentions about the water, she says, give me some. And he makes this kind of odd statement, go get your husband and we'll talk about it. Now, it's a rather odd statement. Why would he do this? Well, she responds, truthfully, I don't have a husband. And Jesus commends her for answering the question truthfully. The reality is she's had five husbands, and the man she is living with now is not her husband. Now, last week some of us were very kind to this woman, and we assumed that she was a widow five times. Okay? Kind of makes you wonder about the insurance involved, etc., but that's a whole different story. But that's being kind to her that she was a widow five times. I suspect she was a little bit looser than that. Just my opinion. And she was now living with a sixth man. Jesus complimented her on being truthful in her answer. And she goes, wow, this man knows something about me that first off, most of my neighbors, well, maybe my neighbors know, But this Jewish man wouldn't know. So she acknowledges the fact that he is indeed a prophet. You've got to be a prophet or you wouldn't have known my uh, marital state or lack thereof. So since I have you with me, Mr. Prophet, since I've got your full attention, let me ask you a deep theological question. We the Samaritans... Worship God over here on this mountain. You, Jews, worship God over in the temple in Jerusalem. Which is right? What's the right answer? And he picks it up in verse 21. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And we talked about the fact last week that as a Jewish individual a jewish rabbi this is a radical statement to say that we're not going to worship god on this mountain would have been okay for a jew because that mountain didn't mean anything to a jew but to tell a jew we are not going to worship at the temple that's blasphemy i mean that's big time keep going you samaritans worship what you do not know We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. There's a lot of theology in this passage. What does it tell us about the nature of God? Let's start there. Come on, this is easy. He's a spiritual being. As I said last week, we are not Mormons. The Mormons believe God has a physical body. And if you ask them about it, and if they've studied it, they will go over to the Old Testament and they'll find that verse where it says God moved his hand or God stepped his foot or God sat down and they'll say, see, that proves that God has a physical body. Well, we know it doesn't. We know that God is using human imagery to demonstrate for our simple minds the power of God. So when it talks about the hand of God, It is referring to God acting in our world. But it doesn't mean that he has a physical hand. This verse is very clear and very unambiguous. God is a spiritual being. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it is a thing. (laughs) What does it mean? The fact that he is a spiritual being is what allows him to be present everywhere. If he were a physical being, he would have to be located at one spot. Here's your trivia question of the day. Where is the God of the Mormons located? Nope. He's located on the planet Kolob. Probably. (laughs) He is physically located somewhere because he's a physical being. By nature, physical things have to exist in one space. But we know that God is present everywhere because God is a spiritual being. Anybody know what the second law of thermodynamics is? Come on. I'm not going to ask you what the first one is, just the second one. Everything proceeds from order to chaos. Things tend toward disorder. If you ever question that, come over to my house and see my kids' rooms. (laughs) Sorry. Physical Things deteriorate. They do. They wear out unless they are being renewed, unless they are being refurbished. God does not wear out. He doesn't get old. He doesn't suffer decay because he is not a physical being. The laws of physics don't wear him down. You and I are wearing out constantly. Anybody want to argue that point? I don't think so. But God doesn't suffer from that limitation because God is a spiritual being. We could go on and on talking about what it means that God is a spiritual being. But here's the interesting point. Here's the important point. God is a spiritual being And we are to worship God in spirit and truth. What does that say about us? Come on, this is easy. We're spiritual, we have a spiritual side of our existence. As I've said in, bef- in here before, we sometimes think of ourselves, when we do think of ourselves biblically, as physical beings who happen to have a spirit. Biblically, a more accurate presentation is that we are spiritual beings who happen to have a body. Now, both sides of that are good, both sides of that are real. Both sides of it are valid. There's not the evil body and the good spiritual side. If you believe that, you're a good Gnostic. We're not Gnostics. We believe God created us spiritual, physical, together, and that was good. Because that's the way God created us. But what it means is we are to worship God with our spiritual being. Huh. What in the world does that look like? That got him stumped. Pardon? Truth? Truth? We're going to talk about the truth here in just a moment. We're, We're breaking this in two and probably shouldn't, okay? God doesn't separate the Spirit and the truth, but we'll, we'll for just a second now. Does it have anything to do with uh, the
1: fact that in the Old Testament things were more visual? People put more emphasis on sacrifices and what I do, whereas uh, I believe somewhere God said in the Bible that I would rather a person with the
0: right hmm? heart, I'm paraphrasing it, than somebody that brings me a bunch of sacrifices. I desire mercy not sacrifice, is what God, speaking through the prophet, says. But wait a minute. God said, give me the sacrifice. In order to understand what spiritual worship looks like, let's look at the opposite of it. Well, not the real opposite. The real opposite would be no worship. But let's look at physical worship. And to do that, let's look at some of our favorite people, the Pharisees. Okay? The Pharisees had the list. They had the list of the law. Some of which had been given by God. Okay? And that's why when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, he tells the people, do what the Pharisees tell you, but don't do like they do. Because they're not doing what they ought to be doing. They're simply following a list. I can live the religious life, be it an Old Testament religious life or a New Testament religious life, by going through a particular set of physical motions. I wake up on Sunday morning. I go to church on Sunday morning. I sing the hymns on Sunday morning. I sit through the service on Sunday morning. I go home. I have done my physical worship. But what is the condition of my heart? Let's look at the Pharisees. They kept the law. They were supposed to keep the law. Keeping the law was a good thing. Sometimes we poke them in the eye for keeping the law. They were supposed to keep the law. But what they had done is they had neglected the heart of the matter and were more concerned with keeping their list than with showing love and mercy and compassion to those in need around them. So when Jesus heals on the Sabbath day, they are not ecstatic about the fact he just healed someone. They are perturbed because he broke their rule. Physically, they were doing everything they ought to do on the Sabbath and not doing what they ought not do on the Sabbath. Spiritually, they were doing nothing. And that's why Jesus said, You are, in fact, whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside there's nothing but death. It was physical worship, but not spiritual worship. When God instituted in the Old Testament the sacrificial system, we today know that that is a picture of Christ and the final sacrifice. But they were to do it physically correctly, but also with the right heart. And when they stopped doing it with the right heart, and did it only as a physical exercise, God says, forget it. I'd rather have this much mercy than all the sacrifices you can pile on top of each other. We are physical beings. We are spiritual beings. merged together. And we are to worship God with the totality of who we are. We are to worship God outwardly correctly, but we are to do it from a heart, from a spiritual nature that is in tune with who God is. And that is spiritual worship. Go ahead. Well, we saw that when we worked through 1 Corinthians, the fact that um, we're not really to judge those outside the church, okay? The fact that those who are apart from Christ live like they're apart from Christ shouldn't shock any of us. In fact, we've almost got it backwards in that we want to sit here and blast the world, but once you join the church, we want to treat you with kids' gloves and be kind and sweet. When... 1 Corinthians would lead us to believe that when you join the church, then you're saying, I am, in fact, subscribing to the Word of God. I am, in fact, putting myself under the authority of the Word of God. The people out there aren't. So that's kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing. We do spend our time blasting them because that's more fun. Jesus could have begun this entire encounter with blasting this Samaritan woman for being a Samaritan. But he didn't. It was irrelevant to the conversation. So, God is spirit, and he is looking for people to worship him in spirit, that is, with a heart that is correct. Not just outward motion, outward activity, but a heart That seeks the things of God. God is spirit and God is truth. And we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. What does truth mean? Come on. This is easy. Go back to your philosophy 101 class. It's not false. Well, that's a cop-out answer if I ever heard one. (laughs) Understanding Understanding. what is the Word of God. Truth is that which corresponds with reality, with the way things really are. What does that mean when it comes to worship? And in particular, worshiping God. What it means is we can't just make it up. We can't decide that today I'm going to worship Baal. And as long as I do it sincerely, I'm okay. And tomorrow I'm going to worship this God or that God Or I'm going to worship the biblical God, but I'm only going to worship every other verse because some of them I don't like. This is why God prohibited the nation of Israel from making any image of God. Anything. I don't care. As soon as you make an image of God, it is false. Why? Because God is spirit. Okay, one of you good painters in here, paint me a picture of spirit. You can't. You have to paint a physical thing. And as soon as you paint a physical thing and say, that's God, God says, no, it's not. As soon as you put God into a statue, no matter how big that statue is, God says, no, that's not me. I'm bigger than that and a lot better looking. All of our attempts to make images of God, be it physical images, be it mental images where we take the characteristic of God and we pull off the parts we don't like and we keep the parts that we do like, we take the parts of scripture we do like and we read those and we take the parts we don't like and we just kind of tear them out like Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible, we are no longer worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Those two have to go together. Oftentimes we equate worshiping God in spirit with being very passionate. I care a lot. And that's good. We are to be passionate. We are to care a lot. But if we separate that from truth, we can be very passionate worshiping something that is totally Wrong. And if you look at the history of mankind, the entire history of mankind, the whole thing is mankind worshiping something other than God as we understand him in the scripture. We go make up a whole different God. We take pieces of a God. We take some object. We take something else and we worship them. As I've said in here before, I had a friend and he made the comment one time. We as human beings are spiritual beings and we want to worship something. We also, all of us, have a fallen nature. And left to our own devices, we are going to combine those two, and we're going to worship something of our own making. And Christ says no. Why is he telling this to this woman at this particular time? You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We Jews worship what we do know. You worship on this mountain at a physical location. There had been a temple at this particular location. There's some suggestion that uh, the Maccabees in the intertestament period, the Maccabees had actually gone out and destroyed the temple that the Samaritans used for worshiping God. In their attempt to purify the land, they had destroyed the temple, the Samaritan temple. But they still worship there. You worship over there. The Jews worship at this temple over here. And what he will tell the disciples later is, in fact, we had a sermon on it several weeks ago. It won't be long, and all these stones are all going to be thrown down. About, mm, whatever it is, 40 years from now, from when this passage is occurring. All those stones are going to be torn down. But that's not important because the jews had begun to limit god to that one piece of real estate and the samaritans had begun to limit god to that one piece of real estate and god said no i've got better things in mind i've got a different temple 1 corinthians 3:16 and 17 don't you know that you yourselves are god's temple You yourselves are God's temple, and that God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. The Jews are limiting God to that piece of real estate. The Samaritans are limiting God to this real estate. Jesus is saying, I'm going to blow all that wide open. You are the temple. You are the place where God resides. Wow. This is kind of different. It's shockingly different. What are the implications of this? I can't live with only physical worship if god's spirit is living in me i have to have spiritual worship or i'm not having worship at all ephesians 2:19 to 22 consequently you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with god's people and members of god's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets which Christ Jesus himself with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here he's talking about us collectively. We are the temple. I am the temple. We are the temple. And if those stones get torn down, if those stones get torn down, it doesn't matter anymore. Because we are the temple. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Romans 12, famous passage, one of my favorites. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Huh. Look at that for a moment and think about it. I'm doing a physical act which is a spiritual act of worship. Does that confuse us at all? It might if we start thinking taking these two pieces and tearing them apart. God made us physical and spiritual beings. That's the way he made us. That's the way he declared us good. But in order to live our lives in proper worship to God, we need to make sure that it is the spiritual dimension that is guiding our lives, that our spirit... In communion with God's spirit is what is directing our worship and our everyday existence. And in order to ensure that our spiritual being is the driver, we have to discipline the physical being so that it is not the determinator of the, that which determines our destiny. We have to tell our appetites, no. We have to sacrifice our physical side so that our spiritual side can call the shots in our life. We don't kill our body. We don't bring out the whips. We present our body to God as a, not a dead sacrifice, which is what we saw in the Old Testament, where you would slit the throat of the lamb and plop it on the altar, but as a living sacrifice. We give our bodies so that our spirits will be in communion with God's spirit and we will live as we ought to live. And that is spiritual worship. How do we worship God in spirit and in truth? We worship God in truth by knowing who God is. How do we do that? We study, we meditate on the Word of God until we know who God is. We worship God in spirit by not allowing our bodies to direct our everyday existence. As 21st century Americans, I dare say that our lives are dominated by the physical needs and appetites of our physical nature. We are bombarded with commercials. We are bombarded with all of these things that say you have to have this in order to in order to be happy you have to satisfy every physical nature or you won't be happy every physical desire every physical thing has to be satisfied or you can't be happy and god says no forget that i'm offering you living water that satisfies a spiritual thirst And when I give it to you, you will never be spiritually thirsty again. And what you will find is that is far and above any physical thing that you might desire. Once again, and I will say it repeatedly we are physical beings, and we are spiritual beings. We're not throwing, we're not pulling out the whips and whipping ourselves as some in the medieval period did. We're not doing that. But we're not letting our spirit, we're not letting our physical side determine and guide our life. The woman said, "I know that the Messiah is coming." This is verse 25. "When he comes, he will explain everything to us." And this is where we ended last week. Then Jesus declared, "I who speak to you am he." How do we learn, how do we learn to worship God in spirit and in truth? In order to really learn how to do that, we need a physical, spiritual being to show us how to do that. And God says, okay, I'll take care of that. I will send my son as a physical being with all the desires, with all the appetites of the flesh, just like you and me, I will send him and he will show you how to have spiritual communion with God. He will show you how to live a life not dictated by the desires of the flesh. But more than that, he will provide the sacrifice for when you fail, and you will, to do that which I would have you do. How do we learn to worship God? We look at Christ because Christ worshipped God. I can do nothing other than that which the Father tells me to do. It was pretty simple. I've said before, Christ basically had... One thing on his to-do list, to do that which the Father tells me to do. Some days that was teaching out in the countryside. Some days that was healing people. Some days it was running people out of the temple. Whatever it was, to do the will of the Father. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, I'm here, I'm here to explain it to you. We didn't make it any further in our lesson than we did last week. How did that happen? I've got a long thing to read here, and uh, we will close with it. Somewhere I've got it down here, but it, you won't be able to read it. <laughs> Richard Baxter is a Puritan writer, um, he wrote this huge, thick book called A Christian Directory. Basically, he was asked to speak at a pastor's conference, and he couldn't come because he was sick. And they said, would you mind writing a few notes down how to be a pastor? And basically, if there's any problem that the church has ever had on any topic, it's in this book, okay? It's this thick, small print. Anyway, it says, We are to offer God no worship that is clearly contrary to, ...to his nature and perfections, but such as is suited to him as he is revealed to you in his word. Thus Christ teacheth us to worship God as he is, and thus God often calleth for holy worship because he is holy. God is spirit, therefore they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, which God opposeth to mere external ceremony or shadows... For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Therefore, this is number two, God is incomprehensible and infinitely distant from us. Therefore worship Him with admiration and make not either visible or mental images of Him nor debase Him by undue resemblance of Him to any of His creatures. God is omnipresent, and therefore you may everywhere lift up holy hands to Him, and you must always worship Him as in His sight. He's watching you. God is omniscient and knoweth your hearts. Therefore, let your hearts be employed and watched in his worship. God is most wise and therefore not to be worshipped ludicrously with toys as children are pleased and to quiet them, but with wise and rational worship. God is most great and therefore to be worshipped with the greatest reverence and seriousness and not presumptuously but with a careless mind or wandering thoughts or rude expressions. God is most good and gracious, and therefore not to be worshipped with backwardness, unwillingness, and weariness, but with great delight. God is most merciful in Christ, and therefore not to be worshipped despairingly, but in joyful hope. God is true and faithful, and therefore to be worshipped believingly and confidently, and not in distrust and unbelief. God is most holy and therefore to be worshiped by holy persons in a holy manner and not by unholy hearts or lips nor in a common manner as if he if we had to do but with a man. He is the maker of our souls and bodies and therefore to be worshiped both with soul and body. He is your redeemer and savior and therefore to be worshiped by you as sinners in the humble sense of your sin and misery and as redeemed ones in the thankful sense of his mercy and all in order to your further cleansing, healing and recovering recovery. He is your regenerator and sanctifier and therefore to be worshiped not in the confidence of your natural sufficiency but by the light and love and life of the Holy Ghost. He is your absolute Lord and the owner of you and all you have. And therefore to be worshipped with the absolute resignation of yourself and all and honored with your substance and not hypocritically with exceptions and reserves. He is your sovereign king and therefore to be worshipped according to his laws with an obedient kind of worship and not after the tradition of men nor the will or wisdom of the flesh. He is your heavenly father and therefore all these holy dispositions should be summed up into the strongest love and you should run to him with the greatest readiness and rest in him with the greatest joy and thirst after the full fruition of him with the greatest of your desires and press towards him for himself with the most fervent and important suits. All these, the very being and perfection of God will teach you in his worship. And therefore, if any controverted worship be certainly contrary to any of these, it is certainly unwarranted and unacceptable unto God. These are people who knew how to worship. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. All of this started... With Jesus asking a simple question to a person he should never have talked to in the first place, but Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. The question for us is, what are we here to do? We didn't make it to the rest of this passage, but I'll tell you what it says. Jesus looks out, and he sees that the field is ripe and ready to harvest. And as he says elsewhere, where are the harvesters? I'll give you a hint. That's us. And I'll give you another hint. That is spiritual worship. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being who you are. I pray, Lord, that we would learn to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.